That's five down and five to go. Are, are you a corrupt politician? <laughs> <laughs> or am I being redundant? It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, Episode 54. There's an honored guest tonight. I am one of those men, Noah Diamond, and I'm here with another one of those men, Matthew Conium. Hello. Can I please buy back your introduction to me? <laughs> of course, we'll do nothing to get on your nerves. Uh, we continue here to marvel at the outpouring of support and enthusiasm that has been shown to this podcast on Patreon. And in a tradition going all the way back to last month, I will provide a detailed Patreon update at the end of this episode. What I will do right now is introduce our guest. Matthew, we are joined by author, humorist, raconteur, Brett Leverage. Brett's wit and wisdom have graced Entertainment Weekly, Time Out New York, This American Life, All Things Considered, and many other publications and programs. His hilarious and delightful book, Men My Mother Dated and Other Mostly True Tales, was a finalist for the Thurber Prize for American Humor. Brett is the man behind Cladrite Radio, and his many Marx Brothers credentials include impersonating Groucho as a waiter in a theme restaurant in Oklahoma and serving on the Marx Fest committee in New York. Furthermore, if you saw I'll Say She Is at the Connolly Theater in 2016, you definitely met Brett Leverage as the production's house manager who greeted you at the door. Welcome to the show, Brett. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm an avid listener to the podcast. I've listened to every episode, some of them all the way to the end. So uh, you can you can <laughs> you can tell I'm really a fan. And and I want to say about about Mark's Fest, I actually came up with the name Mark's Fest. Uh, we were initially tossing around some very obscure names that would only appeal to uh, true insider Marx friends. And I said, how about we do something that other people understand? And I came up with Marx Fest. <laughs> I think that was my major contribution to the whole the whole affair, but uh, I was proud of that one thing. By no means your only contribution, but <laughs> ab absolutely an important one. And uh, yeah, I had forgotten that. Well, Brad, e even if you've only listened to the beginnings of every episode, uh, you know that uh, we always ask first-time guests for their Marx Brothers origin stories. So um, how did you find them, and how did you find them? Well, I'm going to tell you that this is going to sound uh, silly, but but I almost feel that I was led to the Marx Brothers, you know, whether you think one, one wants to attribute that to the universe at large or uh, a, higher, a higher being, but... Uh, the first time I encountered them was on a New Year's Eve. I was probably about eight years old. My parents had, were throwing a party, and some of the guests brought their kids. So we were all shuttled off to, uh, you know, one of the bedrooms with a tiny black and white TV to let the, the parents enjoy their their uh, mid sixties uh, frivolities. And there was a Mark Shows movie on the TV. I don't remember watching very much of it. And I'm 99.9% .9 sure it was a night in Casablanca, but why I'm sure of that, I don't know, because I, don't, I didn't watch very much of it. But that's when I first became aware of them. Um, and it was some scene where there was a lot of physical uh, stuff going on, and I, it, it, it struck me, but it, it didn't change my life right then. Then I was a, a, a fan of Laugh-In, as many people were in those days, and I, you know, I was a young teen then, and there was a, 
an episode and, and a segment on an episode that featured Richard Dawson as Groucho and Steve Lawrence as Groucho. So it was dueling Grouchos. And one of them was uh, a casting agent and one of them was an actor. And uh, I think they started out seated, but eventually we're doing the Groucho lope all over the desk and the furniture. As And I even remember the first few lines. The casting person said, well, I guess you're here about the role. And the actor, Groucho, says, I don't feel like a role. I prefer a strawberry tart. Uh, Prune Danish, I think it was. And then the, the casting agent says, funny, you look more like a strawberry tart. And then it went on from there. And honestly, I saw that show one time, and I remembered those three lines right from the beginning. And it, that was my cup of tea. And so now I'm curious, at least, about Groucho. A couple of years go by, my father and I are out in the garage. Mom has tasked us with cleaning out the mess in the garage. There's a box of old newspapers. I find one with an ad that had a little Groucho uh, caricature on it. Tell him Groucho sent you. And I asked my dad, who is this? And he said, that's a Groucho Marx. He's a comedian. He, he had a, a quiz show. Um, and that's really all I had to say. When I turned 16 and got my driver's license, uh, there was way across town in Oklahoma City where I grew up, a tiny little revival house. And Oklahoma City is perhaps the least likely place in the world for a revival house to exist. But I asked, now I thought, here's my chance to see the Marx Brothers because they were, it, it only showed old comedies. I don't think it even showed old dramas. And they were showing Horse Feathers and Monkey Business. I didn't know if those were the best two movies to see, but I asked for permission to borrow the car, drove across town, and was instantly hooked during uh, Groucho's speech to the students and faculty members. I mean, it's, it, literally my life changed that night. And we went, I went with a friend, we watched both movies, and we had to be home by a certain hour, but we cheated a little and stayed and watched the opening speech of, of Horse Feathers again. Uh, and, I, and from then on, uh, it really impacted my life. Anyone who knew me in the high school and beyond knew I was a huge Marx Brothers fan. And if you dig through like my old yearbooks and the little signatures that, that you have friends put in your yearbooks, easily a third of them mention Groucho, if not half. Uh, and it made it very easy on my family <laughs> to a gift-giving time, because in those days there were books and T-shirts. It was really a prime time for Marx Brothers fans. And uh, so they could always just get me something Marx Brothers related for Christmas or my birthday or whatever. And I was I was a very, very happy man. Um, then in college, I got, as you mentioned, a job at a, at a restaurant in Oklahoma City where all the waiters dressed in costume and portrayed characters. Uh, it was, a you know, as you might guess, kind of a wacky restaurant. And the decor was very uh, the salad the salad bar was an, an actual Jaguar XKE, and the salad was where the seats were, salad and soup. So it was a wacky place. And and getting to, to be Groucho, or my version of Groucho, uh, was sort of life-changing, too. I probably had the worst Groucho voice of anybody who ever tried to imitate him. I was, I was 19 and 20, and I was an Oklahoman, you know, with an Oklahoma accent. Not the strongest Oklahoma accent, but nonetheless. Uh, so I'm sure I, the voice was terrible, but I had, you know, I had the rhythm. I had a version of the wit, uh, a watered down version of the wit, no doubt. And, uh, and worked there for five years. And that, those were five of the best years of my life. It was just so great. No, you would understand this, uh, that feeling of getting to step into his shoes in, in some way just, just was unbelievable. And then finally, when I moved to New York, I, uh, I lived on the Upper West Side for a little while, subletting a place. Then when I got my my own apartment, 
and a friend was moving from Oklahoma to join me. It was on East 93rd Street, between 1st and 2nd, not 3rd and Lex, but I was beside myself that I was going to be living on the same street as the Marx Brothers. And uh, I imagine that surely when they were kids, they went to the East River to swim. I have no idea if that's the case, but perhaps they did. Some kids did. And if so, they must have walked right down my block to get there. And I, I was just thrilled at, at the very notion. So uh, my life was truly changed by the Marx Brothers. I know many fans would say that. Um, but I don't know how many entertainers are like that. How many, people's ha- how many entertainers have that much impact on people that they feel their life changed when they discovered them. But mine certainly did. Oh, Brett, you've been such an important part of my Marx Brothers experience for almost 10 years now. You know, it's well, it's just about nine years now since Marx Fest. Uh, it's, it's hard for me to imagine them without you as it is for you to imagine yourself without them. Very kind. Um, we want to proceed with uh, the uh, main subject of this show. But before we do that, uh, we want to acknowledge a, a recent and tremendous loss to the Marx Brothers community. Matthew? Yes, it doesn't happen very often, fortunately, but it is one of the more uh, melancholy duties of this podcast to to note when uh, important people uh, go on ahead of us. And it's uh, sadly appropriate, given the Groucho-centric nature of uh, of the show that's going to follow, uh, that we note the passing of Richard J. Anobly, who died on February the 10th at the age of 76. Richard was, of course, the man behind Wire Duck and Hooray for Captain Spaulding, books of Marx script extracts and frame blow ups which were for an entire generation of Marx fans pre-home media the only way to access the work at any time of one's own choice as such they filled a need then and survive as delightful nostalgia pieces today Richard published several other books in the same format covering various comedians and classic movies but it was for his 1973 book the Marx Brothers scrapbook that he'll be best remembered by Marx fans a treasure trove of visual material and invaluable, unguarded interviews with such otherwise elusive figures as Gummo, Susan, and a memorably, awesomely uncooperative Zeppo. The book became notorious for its inclusion of a series of long conversations with Groucho, in which the subject slandered and insulted friends and foes alike in language that might be described as salty, to put it mildly. At the urging of an Aaron Fleming somewhat misguidedly intent on damage limitation, Groucho was badgered into taking out a lawsuit against the book, and as a result, the prevailing wisdom among fans for some time was that the book, though essential, was disrespectful of its subject, and its author dishonourable. I remember reading a furious dismissal of it in the Fredonia Gazette that would seem quite shocking today because, I'm pleased to say, before Richard's death, the tide of consensus very much turned in his favour. And I'm especially pleased to say that I may have played some small role in that. Richard had long since left the world of film writing to become a post-production supervisor in Canada when Bob got in touch with him on behalf of the Facebook group. And I asked him if he'd be willing to discuss the affair for my forthcoming Groucho book. We found a very private man who was reticent to speak about an episode which he said felt as though it belonged to a different lifetime. who was somewhat guarded and one sense still mildly bruised by his experience but he also soon revealed himself to be warm friendly and generous both with his time and in more personal ways too he did agree to recall the scrapbook debacle for my book and the interview is i hope the last word on what really happened and where the responsibility for its various twists and turns should rest 
He revealed that Groucho was not, as had often been claimed, tricked into speaking off guard or deceived into thinking that his more caustic remarks would be kept off the record. In fact, he read and initialed every page, even requesting some edits and eliminations that are nobly honoured. It was Aaron and Arthur, he said, who, shocked when they discovered just how frank Groucho had decided to be, cajoled him into mounting a spurious lawsuit that unsurprisingly went nowhere. All of this Richard recounted with a sense of bemused distance and entirely without rancour. We had hoped to have him as a guest on the podcast, and he did agree to appear, but as the recording date drew near, he had second thoughts and wrote to say that he'd changed his mind. The matter, he said with apology, was in the past, and on reflection, he felt that there it should remain. Needless to say, we always hoped he would change his mind and kept the invitation open. Alas, it now will never be. Richard's contribution to Mark's scholarship, however, is enormous, and the scrapbook remains one of the half-dozen Mark's tomes that no discerning fan should be without. He was an intelligent and thoughtful man whose kindness will be remembered by many of us. There will be a celebration of his life in Toronto this spring. Thank you, Matthew. That was really the obituary and nobly deserved, and uh, it's appropriate for it to come from uh, the heart of the Marx Brothers fandom uh, right here. And um, a lot of people in the Facebook group, notably Veiko Suvanto and, and others, have made the point that you've just made, which is that the Marx Brothers Council group and the podcast and your book, That's Me, Groucho, have uh, undoubtedly played a role in um, in correcting the damage to Anobili's reputation that has come from all the years of fans sort of repeating um the, the party line about uh, the Marx Brothers scrapbook, uh, his contributions are certainly going to last as long as this little planet does. Yeah, I can remember, you know, reading it. I was very young when I read it in my teens. Uh, and, I, you know, I was shocked by some of the language. Uh, you know, I was in high school. It's not like I wasn't hearing some uh, salty language, but maybe not quite uh, as extreme as some of what uh, I read in in the book. So I was disappointed in that. But overall, I loved the book. Uh, as, you, as Matthew mentioned, the visual elements were just amazing and the range of interviews. Um, and, you know, I I sort of regret on Groucho's behalf that he didn't rein himself in a little bit. Uh, you know, I I, yeah. I wish it hadn't gone that way, but certainly it wasn't a nobody's fault. And, uh, and that book is a huge gift, a huge gift to uh, to all of us. So I'm very grateful to him for that, and I'm sorry to hear of his passing. Well, the subject of Groucho speaking extemporaneously as himself, uh, and uh, largely in that period, that era, uh, is our subject today. So it does make a good segue into our uh, the main body of this episode. Uh, Groucho as guest. Robert Bader's excellent PBS documentary, Groucho and Cavett, has been a recent and very vivid reminder that in the post-You Bet Your Life period, uh, much of Groucho's most noteworthy work was as a guest on other people's shows, uh, mostly talk shows, occasional panel shows or game shows. And so we thought it would be interesting to focus on a handful of those appearances and see what conclusions can be drawn about Groucho the guest. And this thinking of these appearances, not just as interviews or as uh, promotional uh, work in support 
of other work, but really as part of Groucho's body of work, uh, these television appearances, which begin toward the end of the You Bet Your Life years and continue um, almost right up until the end. We are going to talk about Dick Cavett and the Dick Cavett Show. But uh, to begin with, we're going to focus on another favorite. Matthew, what's What's My Line? Uh, what is What's My Line? What's My Line um, is is a game show in which uh, members of the public appear and a, a panel of, uh, of well-known people have to guess what they do for a living. It hardly seems like a recipe for, for success, <laughs> but it, it ran for years uh, in America and indeed um, over here too. And Groucho made uh, at least four appearances Um is that the total, or are there unknown? Uh, I know there are some missing episodes. As far as I'm aware, it's four. Yes, two, two as a as a, a guest on the panel, and two as a as a surprise guest where the panel have to guess who he is. And I'm going to make a claim uh, that's so ridiculous I'm ashamed to think of it myself. And it's this: I contend that Groucho's appearances on What's My Line, uh, brief and modest though they may be are in fact the the best of Groucho on television if what you're looking for from Groucho on television is the Groucho of the movies. Um, I think very often when he is an interview guest, I sense the kind of tension that I, that I've talked about on here before and and discussing the book between Groucho the the real person and Groucho the the comic persona and the the assumption seemingly on everybody's part that there is no distinction between the two i think there is a distinction between the two and i think that Groucho was keenly aware of it and very often i sense in the interview shows a kind of attention on his part because he feels that he has to live up to this reputation which which i think it was only uh, only to, to to a small degree deserved i you know i don't think he necessarily was a biting rapier wit uh, all the time and I, I can sense this feel this pressure on him whether real or imagined on his part to be that very often on Cavett for instance you'll hear him make a, you know a, a mildly amusing comment and, and Cavett will sort of double up with with laughter you know and there's the, you just feel this kind of pressure on on everyone um on a game show on a panel game that pressure isn't there because all he has to be is a personality and all he has to do theoretically is the job of anyone else on the panel and that's fine he'll have earned his fee that way so paradoxically i i feel that this kind of lifts that sense of imposition from his shoulders and as a result he does free up in a way that he probably isn't able to do on a lot of the other shows uh, and he does become miraculously this Groucho that everybody wants. Some of us may to a greater degree or another uh, be forced to come into more contact with one sex than the other and uh, you realize that no one's listening to you. Yes, I don't know. <laughs> A panel game gives him everything he needs to be disruptive. It, it has structure, it has rules, it has conventions, all of which he can ignore and destroy. And it even has stooges. Um, Arlene and Dorothy are, are kind of his Dumont. Bennett Cerf is, is kind of his, his Roscoe W. Chandler. And he's given license, which I think is unique. I can't think of anybody else who uh, in this period would have had this license to essentially destroy the show. Uh, Has your collar any... button come undone, Groucho? 
I beg your pardon. Did your collar button come on? No, I did that deliberately. Oh, you did it deliberately. That's different. It's warm. It's a little like being hung sitting here. (laughs) It's interesting that in Britain, similarly, Spike Milligan was given the same license. It was the same thing was expected of him. And when he went on game shows, even ones where where members of the public are competing to to take home some money or or a, a holiday, he is allowed to essentially screw things up in exactly the same way. And this is what what Groucho does on particularly on his first appearance on What's My Line which was in September of, of 1959 it's interesting that the um, UPI writer Fred Danzig made an observation in 1959 when he was announcing the return of You Bet Your Life for a 13th series he wrote while Groucho the Quizmaster is probably the fastest gag man in the West I couldn't help thinking of his recent guest appearances on the Jack Parr What's My Line and I've Got a Secret shows Groucho the Guest is funnier than Groucho the Quizmaster, I believe. He left the other fellows' shows in shambles as he deflates formats, egos and protocol. And, and that's what he does. I mean, he comes on on that first uh, What's My Line show. Uh, he passionately embraces Arlene and Dorothy. He talks over the latter's introduction to Bennett Surf. Uh, and it's obvious that he's, he's declared war on the program, essentially. He stops the proceedings to sing. Uh, he wastes points by deliberately asking irrelevant questions of every contestant. And in perhaps his finest moment, he ruins the, the mystery guest round by putting his blindfold uh, first on his chin and then upside down over his nose. This latter sequence made even funnier by host John Daly's helpless hysterical laughter throughout. In the first round, after asking the contestant a ridiculously specific question, which is, do you make candy? And receiving the near inevitable no, he then inquires with a straight face, what do you do for a living? Which is, which is a, a wonderful uh, question to ask. Um, uh, what's my line, uh, a contestant? Loads of his interjections here are, are zingers. Uh, the all-time classic, though, I think, is, uh, is undoubtedly this. Do you touch them above the waist or below the waist? <laughs> yes, indeed. It, it does seem true of certainly the What's My Line appearances. And I think this seems to be true of all of these guest appearances, that Groucho, when it's not his show, he is an essentially disruptive presence. And as you point out, Matthew, that does give this Groucho something in common with his earlier film and stage character that he didn't completely have as the avuncular quiz master on You Bet Your Life. He, he didn't disrupt his own show in the same way. Um, well, uh, this podcast, uh, we are always on the lookout for dissenting opinion. And I am uh, rubbing my hands together eagerly because I think we <laughs> may have on the show right now a bit of dissent from the uh from the usual adoration that the first groucho appearance on what's my line receives what do you got for us brett well you do have that dissent but it's i i have to admit having watched it again for the first time in quite a while uh the dissent's going to be a little bit uh watered down from from what i promised you i know you wouldn't have me uh have me lie so i'm gonna be straight with you the the episode was the the first episode was a little better than i remembered it i still felt he was trying too hard and i'm gonna put forth a a theory uh i don't think it's particularly unique or or special to me but i think groucho kind of needed to be the center of attention and so didn't in other words he wasn't so great at, at being on a team. And on a panel like that, you're on a team to a certain degree. You're working together to a certain degree. 
I love that he disrupted things, um, but he tries so hard. He's often speaking over people, uh, so his line is wasted, and you can't hear what they said. It's those moments that bothered me, the overreach uh, that comes up occasionally in the episode. I also think I reacted initially to this episode the way I did because I have a deep affection for What's My Line. I think it was a wonderful show and fully deserving of its 17 years and 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 beyond. I mean, it continued in a different format later, but um, I love the show. Uh, I love it in a very different way that I love Groucho, certainly the Groucho of the movies. Uh, I love that it's elegant and sophisticated, um, but everybody, it's not snooty. It's just elegant and sophisticated. All the people on it are down to earth. And you, you feel like they're they're friendly, normal folks, but they live in this kind of rarefied air of of New York for you know first nighters and such. And I love that about it. I love the uh, that John Charles Daly is so erudite, and that he calls everybody uh, you know by Mister and Mrs. And I, I mean, I I love that. So it's great that Groucho came on and disrupted that a bit. But because I'm such a fan of the show, I thought it he went a bit far and sort of disrespected the show. And from where I said, it doesn't deserve disrespect. However, I'll also add that everybody on the show seems to be having a marvelous time. No one seems to be the least bit bothered by anything he's doing. So in that sense, you know, good on him. Even Dorothy Kilgallen, who could be, a, she focused so much on, she was so serious about the game. She sometimes forgot to have fun, but even she seems, you know, he, he rattles her. But he doesn't anger her, it doesn't seem. She seems to be having a fine time. I think it's surely relevant that it was another four years before he came back. I mean, I don't think anybody would have wanted him to to, to do the same thing the following week. Um, it, I think it is very much a kind of a, a one-off sort of where they almost put put the normal show on hold uh, for, to, to, to let him, uh, you know, pull it to pieces. I mean, it, it is true to say that if you look at the, the comments under the, the episodes on YouTube, it is, it is even today, a, a pretty much a 50-50 mix of people who, who think he's terrific and and people who are really infuriated that he he has the cheek to to you know to disrupt this this uh, delightful program. So so I think you know it, it was always going to be uh, um, something that you know a lot of people were going to like and a lot of people were were not going to like. It brings to mind a point that Joe Adamson makes in his uh, slightly critical take on the climactic scene in the Night at the Opera. Um, when he says, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, if the Marx Brothers personally showed up at a performance of Il Travatore and disrupted the opera, you know, I would only be annoyed no matter how funny they were. And this is an occasion, this What's My Line episode, you kind of get to see what that would really be like if the Marx Brothers showed up and disrupted a real thing that people really are enjoying on its own, uh, on its own terms. And you have to remember as well, of course, that he's used to being on a on a on a quiz show where where the quiz is is utterly irrelevant and and a, and a bogus scaffolding for him for him to be himself. You know that's that's his training. You know, it's, it's funny. I've been watching uh, some You Bet Your Lives actually um, recently with my with my son, and we were very amused uh, last week. The one we put on last week was the one where um, his guests get into an argument about the merits of rock and roll, and it's literally about twenty three minutes before. Uh, Fenneman comes on and says, "We're actually running out of time. We we really do need to do this quiz." And there's there's just one <laughs> one round of questions with one uh, pair of contestants, 
and the whole of the rest of the time is is just a discussion about about uh, rock and roll music. I wanted to share a story that I think is telling. Uh, in 1967, Henry Morgan, who uh, was occasionally on What's My Line in the latter years, and each panel member would introduce the next panel member, and then Bennett Surf would bring out Char- John Charles Daly on the show. Well, Bennett Surf is in the process of doing that. Um, and he's going to tell a little story this time to bring out John Charles Daly. I don't know what the story is. And Henry Morgan says, uh, what time does this show go on? Implying that Bennett's surf is, you know, prattling on too long. And Bennett's surf is clearly angered by this and says, may I finish Henry? And Henry Morgan says, I I wish you would, or I was hoping you would. And Bennett is steaming. And, and he says, I won't bother John Charles Daly. And out he comes. And there was tension on the show for the rest of that episode. Now, that's very much, he's doing a Groucho thing there, Henry Morgan. But he couldn't get away with it. He really angered Bennett Surf. I mean, he doesn't, Bennett Surf doesn't hide it. Uh, I, it's, it's an episode worth seeking, I, seeking out. It's in 67. I'm sorry, I'm not sure what month it's in. But um, th- that's the opposite of what happened with Groucho. No one seemed upset at all, including Bennett Surf. I want to mention that on our website, MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com, on the blog entry for this episode, we will be posting uh, YouTube clips of all of the appearances that we're discussing. So if you want to watch them either with us or as you go, you can find them on our webpage. Groucho returned to What's My Line uh, in October of 1963, this time as a mystery guest. And like, like so many mystery guests on What's My Line, particularly those with distinctive and well-known voices and who had a more distinct, more well-known voice than Groucho's, uh, he dealt with, um, with the game by speaking in uh, a voice other than his normal one. Uh, when you appear in pictures, do you ever sing or dance? Why do you say picture? What are you talking about? <laughs> that's not an answer. I would say that's not the that's not the I basic come from fundamental. Strasburg. Strasburg, yeah. yeah. Oh, I was at the, the, the festival there once. Sir. <laughs> you want to pass? No, I don't know who it is, but it seems to me I must be stupid not to because anyone who talks that much in a voice I seem to know. And you are stupid. <laughs> uh, what do we think of Groucho's first turn as a mystery guest? I liked it, and I actually think this is the role I prefer for him on on What's My Line. The action is sort of centered around him as it was on a Squid Show. Uh, I love, and I love it when Groucho does German characters, uh, because he seems to delight in it so very much, whether he's speaking German or, in this case, with a German accent. He never looks like he's having more fun than when he's (laughs) speaking German. Um, Yeah. and, And it's delightful when John Charles Daly speaks some German with him. I don't know what they were saying because I don't speak German, but I didn't need to. It's, it's, it's a very uh, charming moment, uh, one I really enjoyed. And I love it that he, he signs in as Mr. and Mrs. John Smith. And then uh, <laughs> as, he, as he leaves, he says very cheerfully, this was a wasted evening. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, we had very good handwriting, I noticed, on that chalkboard. A lot of people yes. kind of struggle with the chalk, and they write rather clumsily. But his looked, it looked pretty fine. 
<laughs> That's from playing a school teacher all those years. Perhaps. Um, and, perhaps. and in fact, you know, I wonder if the panel is aware uh, that this, you know, Dutch comic persona that Groucho's putting on here is a voice he had been performing with actually for longer than the voice we associate with him. Um, you know, in a way, he's falling back on his original character. At one point, Tony Randall, who's a, one of the panelists, uh, guesses that it might be Danny Kaye. And you can see why he might have thought that, because of the jokey German accent. Uh, it also seemed to uh, to stand out for me that the title of Memoirs of a Mangy Lover gets a laugh when he mentions the title of the book. It's one of those things we're so used to, um, that title, but uh, it gets a great reaction uh, from the What's My Line audience, uh, as does Daly toward the end, saying cheerfully that he has lost control of everything. It's interesting that the the next one, which is it finds him back on the panel, um, is within a year of, of that last one. So it's it's almost as if they were kind of testing the water with him again, uh, with with that um, with that guest appearance. It it, it sort of reminds me a bit of um, of the Hound of the Baskervilles, where uh, um, Conan Doyle had, had killed off Sherlock Holmes in the final problem, and 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 despite various entreaties, uh, had insisted on on doing other things for for some time. Uh, then he writes the Hound of the Baskervilles to sort of test the water. He says it's an un, an undocumented case that took place before Holmes died, and of course the reaction is such that he then bites the bullet and and brings him back properly in uh, in the final problem. And I and I think this is kind of what's happening here with Groucho. I think they've tested the water with him, uh, and uh, so they've decided, yeah, okay, it's it's been long enough. Let's let's bring him back. What is interesting, though, is that in his second appearance as a panelist, it's an all mystery guest edition. I don't know if that's something that they did regularly, Brett. You'll, you'll be able to tell me that, or if it was a, a one off. But I I I can't help thinking that it's it's deliberate that they've decided to to not let him loose on on ordinary members of the public uh with his with his bizarre and irrelevant and often provocative lines of inquiry um but otherwise uh again he's 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 in very good form dorothy introduces him gamely as probably the best looking man in the world uh he lopes in wearing a bizarre hat which he says was his wife's uh and that he's wearing it because his toupee has faded to blonde this is dating from the time when uh he's kind of realizes that toupees are problematic but that doesn't quite want to go to go full bald in uh, in public. Uh, again, his questions are great to the contestants. Are you an animal? Uh, are you an old Buick? Um, are you any specific sex? And my favourite, are you an outdoor sport? Um, I think he's slightly more restrained than the, the 1959 model. Um, we don't quite have the, the, the same sense that he, that he really is bringing the show down around him uh but in other in a, essentially it's uh, it's it's a fine uh, a fine second outing a nice moment in this episode that i'm sure stands out to most comedy fans is Anne bancroft is a mystery guest and groucho remarks of her he says she recently got married a real cute guy she married and he's talking about mel brooks isn't he mm. Although I've softened on my view of the 1959 episode, I much, as a panelist, I much prefer this episode to that one. He seems to be much more comfortable in the role of being a panelist, while still retaining uh, what makes him special uh, for those of us who, who love the disruptive side. So I think it's a terrific episode. Mr. Marks, you're next. You want me to go? Yeah, I want you to go. <laughs> I mean, ask a question. Oh. 
Well, is it a man or an animal? It can't be answered yes or no. I can't? No. Well, how am I going to find you have to out? Pick one of the others. Okay, are you an animal? <laughs> no, that's one thousand nine to go, Miss Press. Good enough for me. <laughs> um, everyone seems to sort of delighted with Groucho, and it's just kind of lovely to see that. And Bancroft says at one point, "That's all right. Groucho can call me an old Buick." <laughs> and essentially, you know, Buick seems to be the go-to word for humor. The yes. go-to car brand. Mm. If you want to be Absolutely. funny about cars, you mention Buicks. And I don't know why that is, but it was interesting to see Groucho do it so long ago. It's not just today, but even back then, if you wanted to be, I guess it's the K sound. I don't know. It's but a funny word, yeah. Yeah, there's something about it. Uh, well, there's one What's My Line left, uh, and that was in April of 1967. This is another mystery guest appearance from Groucho. Yes, this time he's he's plugging the Groucho letters. Um, it is, as you say, quite a bit later. It's 1967. Uh, the rug is back, and he, and he signs in as "Take the Lead Out," <laughs> which is yeah. which is terrific. I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, he he plays it straight for I think I think two questions doesn't he and then uh, when Bennett Surf asks him if he's just had a book published he he, he replies in his own voice you dirty louse uh, and that's yes. effectively <laughs> uh, at the end of the end of the round um, so yeah it's 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 uh, it's it's all good fun again and uh, uh, as John Daly says you you know it's it's exhilarating to have Groucho show up on a program that you're supposed to be running because you stop running it the minute he gets in. <laughs> It's frustrating because they bring him on a little late. Um, Groucho totally throws in the towel when when it's clear that Bennett knows who he is. He, you know, I can't remember the exact wording, but roughly says, you know, why should we? Why bother to continue? Um, and then for a moment, he and John Daly uh, just converse, uh, and Daly kind of asks him about you know his book, and he starts to tell the T. S. Eliot story of how he met him and how they got connected. And then he's like, oh, why am I why am I telling this story? It's boring. And it's not funny. And and then it's quickly right then. I mean, even if they had continued the questioning, they never would have guessed him because it's very brief. His appearance overall is very brief. But I was very pleased at the end to have John Charles Daly announce that all the proceeds from Groucho's book were going to charity. Um, and then on another show we that we'll discuss later, it's it's made clear that royalties from all of Groucho's books went to charity. Uh, at least as, you know, the ones uh, from Groucho and me forward. And, I mean, that's just amazing to me. I mean, not not so surprising. He was a man of means, and he probably didn't need the money. But he was also a man who was always insecure about money. And and mm. to not give a portion yeah. of his proceeds, but all of his money from these three books, I, I just think that's remarkable. And I, I was really pleased and, and even touched to hear it. Uh, and I don't know that Groucho promoted that very much or mentioned it. Often. He didn't. No, no. You're you're right. I mean, he he was he was constantly uh, plugging the, the the letters because he was proud that he was having a book of letters published, and he was you know rather sort of touchingly proud that that his his uh, papers were going to go to the Smithsonian and and so on and so forth. But yeah, his charitable gestures. Uh, he 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 does admirably. Um, not draw attention to at all um that seems to have been a a, a constant really um through his through his later life when he was you know a, a, a very generous man and a, and a very sensitive man and and somebody who was very keenly aware of things uh injustice in the world and 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 who you know did things uh, however small to to try and put put them right hey guys um, hey guys i want i want to chime in with something that i noticed here um 
Yeah. Both times when Groucho was the mystery guest, he was smoking a cigar. And I don't see how the panelists didn't smell the <laughs> smoke uh, making its way over towards them. Well, the first time, they almost didn't guess it. John Charles Daly has flipped over the cards and is about to say Groucho's name. And Arlene says, it's Groucho Marx. Um, literally at the last possible moment. So they almost didn't guess him that time. That's a good point, though. Were cigar-smoking mystery guests common enough that nobody thought to <laughs> Yeah, you would well, think well, that would be a huge It smells clue. like Groucho Marx to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they missed a chance for a crack. All four of Groucho's What's My Line appearances can be seen at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com, where we are posting the clips on the blog entry for this episode. And we might also mention our friend Gary Wetstein, who's responsible for making so many episodes of What's My Line and so much else that's of value to those who love What's My Line available on the internet. Moving on from What's My Line to The Tonight Show, uh, a, a memorable and touching appearance Groucho made on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in October of 1965. Uh, Groucho had a little bit of history with this program and with this host, right, Brett? That's right. Uh, yeah, I'll give a, just a quick rundown on it for those who may not know. Uh, Jack Parr hosted The Tonight Show uh, from 1957 until March 30th, 1962. He had sort of tired of the grind of doing the show, and he dropped out. Interesting little uh, side note, Franklin Pangborn, the uh, terrific character actor of the 30s and 40s, was his announcer uh, at first on The Tonight Show, but only only briefly. He was, he was let go, Franklin Pangborn was let go because he wasn't showing enough enthusiasm, they said. <laughs> <laughs> and, and who did they replace him with? But Hugh Downs. And Hugh Downs may be the most low-key television personality in the history of broadcasting. So I don't know what the thinking was there. But Mr. Pangborn was, was shown the door. Um, so NBC puts on a search for a replacement for Parr. And they settle on Johnny Carson, uh, who was a known figure at that time. He'd, been, he'd hosted various television shows, uh, quiz shows and, and a morning show at, at one point. But he was hosting Who Who Do You Trust? Not Whom Do You Trust, but Who Do You Trust? Uh, on ABC at the time. That was an afternoon quiz show. And ABC refused to, even though he had this chance at this great new assignment, um, ABC refused to release him from his contract. So Parr left on March 30th, uh, and Carson was, wasn't available till the end of September. So they used uh, a rotating group of guest hosts to fill in. Uh, and among them were Jerry Lewis, Jack Carter, Mortzall and Groucho. And I think most of us would probably give uh, our left pinky to have uh, kinescopes or tapes or something of, of Groucho's full hosting of the tennis show. I mean, I, I certainly would. I don't think I've ever, I don't know if any exist. I, I've never seen them. So when on October 1st, when it came time for Carson to over to take over on the tonight show, uh, Groucho introduced him. And now the permanent star of the tonight show, Johnny Carson. So uh, it was a bit of a reunion when Groucho uh, comes on the show, and and it's a drop-in. He just walks out. 
Now, it may not be like this with talk shows now. I don't think it is, but it used to be kind of frequent that people would just walk into the show and interrupt and everyone would laugh and cheer and they would have some wacky fun together. Bob Hope was known for doing this frequently, for dropping in on talk shows uh, unannounced. Now, whether or not this was all planned in advance and the host knew it was coming, I couldn't say, but it was presented as if it was a complete surprise. But it's clear from the beginning that Carson is very fond of Groucho and is happy to have him there. Groucho walks out in his frock coat and jodhpurs. And he, he he makes a big deal out of having put on the jodhpurs. It's hard to get into these. It takes him 20 minutes to put, put on. And he keeps encouraging Carson to ask him, why are you wearing those trousers? Um, and Carson keeps forgetting and getting distracted or whatever. And Groucho keeps reminding him to ask him. He finally does ask, you know, play the straight man and ask him why he's wearing them. And it all leads up to a really feeble joke. Why, why do you wear that when you're playing golf? Because they don't have golf carts there, and we ride horses. And uh, you get off and make the shot and then climb on the horse again. And Groucho acknowledges, and, and he, Groucho makes a joke out of it not getting a laugh. Now, for that feeble wheeze, it took me an hour and a half to get <laughs> I just love wheeze. that phrase. He calls it a feeble wheeze, and I intend to use that for the rest of my days. And I'll have plenty of occasions <laughs> because I deliver many a feeble wheeze myself. So, uh, But I loved, I absolutely loved that line. And then Groucho turns to, uh, he, he pulls out a letter at several pages. And he says, I want you to read from this. And I want you to, and it's so funny. It's very odd. He's very specific about it. He has marked the things he, in the letter that he wants Carson to read. And he goes here, and he's like flipping pages here, and I want you to read here, you know, and, and if that's not for a laugh. This is like him really being serious. He was really making it clear to Carson what he wants him to read, and he hands him the letter. And then he berates Carson for not saying it loud enough or clearly enough and mumbling, you know, all kinds of nonsense like that. But it is, oh, and, and before Carson starts reading the letter, Groucho turns to the pretty blonde who was sitting next to him who had not been introduced to him. Turns out she was a registered nurse. Now, why she was on the show as a registered nurse, I don't know. She was a lovely blonde, but I, I can't imagine. But Groucho turns to her, and uh, and he introduces himself, and she tells him that her name is, as far as I can understand it, Carol Ann Tracy. And he says, so you're two different girls? Um, which, which is funny. And then that's when she tells him she's a registered nurse, and he says, oh, where are you registered? Any place I can, and then, you know, the laughs come up. So uh, I don't know exactly what he said after any place I can. Uh, but he's clearly having a lot of fun with her. But when Carson finally reads the letter, and Groucho gets serious for a moment, the letter's from the library, the head of the Library of Congress, who was asking for Groucho to leave his papers with the library, his personal papers with the Library of Congress. And Groucho's incredibly moved by this. You can see it. He's very proud of it. And he mentions, as he so often does, I never finished public school, you know, uh, this this is something he mentions a lot. It clearly matters to him and hurts him that he wasn't really so very well educated, although he was very well self-educated as well. No, but it 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 seemed to stick with him for the, his entire life the the pain of not having you know received something like a college education, and it's so moving. I found it to be terribly moving that he was so proud and so pleased to share this news with the Tonight Show audience and to have Johnny Carson read it, even as he berated him and teased him and everything else. He didn't drop the humor altogether, but for a little while he does. And you can see how much it means to him. It's very sweet. It's an interesting cross-section of Groucho, isn't it, to have him show up uh, in this ridiculous golf hat and in the coat he wore in Animal Crackers, as he describes it, uh, you know, prompting Carson to read this letter in which the Librarian of Congress 
tells Groucho his papers belong in the same institution that houses the papers of Abraham Lincoln, you know. Um, and and his uh, interaction with the registered nurse, Carol Ann Tracy, is, is quite... Uh, does get your attention, doesn't it? I noticed that when they're coming back from commercial, Groucho is seems to have been deep in conversation with uh, Nurse Tracy, and he's saying something about a banjo player. That's the only... <laughs> um, I think maybe the guest next to her was George Siegel. And I think it, oh. it doesn't really clock him, but it could be him. And George Siegel always played the, ban- the banjo, so... Uh, there's an interesting um, reference to Jack Parr in Carson's conversation with Groucho. Um, Groucho refers to the Lou. Uh, Groucho has just gotten back from his uh, doing his quiz show in England. Um, and when Groucho starts talking about the Lou, he says, I don't want to get into Jack Parr's territory. Uh, during his hosting tenure on The Tonight Show, Jack Parr made a, a joke apparently using the expression WC for water closet. Um, And between the tape and the air, it was deleted from the episode. It was censored. And Parr was so incensed about that, that he walked off the show the next evening. (laughs) He sort of resigned in protest in the middle of the show and left uh, the, the, very animated Hugh Downs to uh, to finish that Tonight Show by himself. Um, Parr did return three weeks later uh, after the network apologized and Parr was finally allowed to do his toilet joke on the air. Uh, so that that's what Grouch was talking about there. So there's quite a bit of Tonight Show history embedded in this encounter. Parr was really a, something of a, a dra- drama queen, Uh I have seen some of his work. Not all of it exists, but I've seen what does, and, and I like him. But boy, he he just was a, a prickly thing and very, very emotional. And, you know, and Cabot mentions it uh, in the documentary, which, you know, we'll get to later, um, you know, that he was just kind of neurotic. And, uh, you know, I bet he was difficult uh, for NBC and his staffers to deal with. Um, and, yeah, the rewards were there. I mean, the show, the show certainly could be terrific with him on it, but. But uh, another thing uh, about this particular uh, clip is that uh, when Groucho is, is first sort of interacting with Carol Ann Tracy and, you know, and clearly acting flirty with her and stuff, as we would expect, Carson at one point says, say the secret word and I'll have you back to my house or something along those lines. Yeah. And I, and I, I couldn't help but wonder, because I find those tedious, those say this, you know, the, the guy doing this and the, say the secret word. Groucho must have just had his fill of that. Um, you know, I can't imagine that didn't get terribly, terribly old. Uh, and actually, Groucho responds very well when because Carson, uh, Carson says, say the secret word and, you know, I'll invite you back to my house or something like that. And Groucho says, what, my dressing room is not good enough? So at least he made some comic use of it. And the same thing happens uh, and something we'll be discussing down the road, the dating game episode. Uh, Jim Lang, the host of the dating game, does it say you know a little thing and i'm like ooh, don't do that it's just so awful <laughs> yeah i agree and yeah let's let's get into that now the dating game appearance of on father's day nine or around father's day 1967 this is an interesting one and even though it's still 1967 uh there's a real sense here of moving into 
uh, a more familiar, a later 20th century. Um, What's My Line and You Bet Your Life both feel uh, very urbane, very sophisticated. But the dating game plays very much like a game show. And uh, Groucho appears with Melinda, who is 21 years old. Yes, it really is like Groucho in a New World. It's not like the counterculture, the Sears counterculture, but the sort of swinging London and flower-powered and and the pop culture design of the dating game. And what I was impressed by is that Groucho kind of held his own. And I think it's because he didn't really try to fit in with the sort of younger crowd. He wasn't out there in a Nehru jacket and love beads or anything like that, or (laughs) he hadn't let his hair grow over his ears like, you know, he just was Groucho Marx out there. Uh, and he seemed confident that that was enough. And it's, of course, it certainly was. There are three gentlemen back there, and I want you to question them, figure out which one would be minute. best How for me. How do you know they're gentlemen? Well, I, I know that. The fact that a man wears pants doesn't necessarily mean he's a gentleman. Then you're going to have to come, for example. <laughs> During the opening, or his introduction, tells the host he watches the show and he quite likes it. And I, I was skeptical. I wonder if he really did. Um, <laughs> It's, it, you know, I watched it. I was a kid and I watched it all the time. Uh, and probably even then, no, it knew it was somewhat insipid. And so it's a little hard for me to imagine Groucho being satisfied with it, especially with his occasionally expressed te- opinions of television in general. Uh, but maybe he did. Maybe it was just like fun and, and or maybe he enjoyed seeing the pretty girls, you know, who, who were who were on the <laughs> show. It could be that. It does seem like uh, letting letting him bring Melinda on was always a way to, to yes. soften Groucho for television. Although in this case, it's a somewhat strange setup. He's he's on the dating game as a father, uh, sort of screening prospective dates for his daughter. It's funny though, isn't it? Because it's it's part of his shtick with her as from right from the start when she was a tiny child it had always been that he was trying to marry her off wasn't it because because she was a drain on his resources and he and, he, and very often when she come, when she goes on you about your life he says you know have you are you thinking of getting married have you met any boys you know and and, and stuff like that you know so it's almost like an extension of that that's true because he was always trying to marry everybody off um <laughs> you know i mean it, that that in a broader sense that was a big part of <laughs> and I read it, it may be in Groucho and Me, but but I read somewhere that one thing he used to say to little kids, cute little kids when he met them, and I was thrilled because I have always done this myself before I ever knew he did it. Was you know he'd meet an eight year old and ask if they were married, mm. which always makes eight year olds and ten year olds and six year olds giggle because it seems so absurd to them. Um, it's a small thing, but I was thrilled when I learned that he did that because I did that too. Something about being married was was important to him. The clip shows his segment but they also show the very opening of the show and at the very opening groucho and melinda are dancing together as jim lang does the intro and all of that and he had, he looks pretty darn spry he's dancing mm. very well and moving moving very well and you know i i really liked watching them dance together she seemed to be injured she's always a little skeptical of groucho uh, uh, i think but you know she seemed to be having a good enough time that that but it is funny it's a little patriarchal for him to be out uh, asking the questions for his daughter, who is not even on the stage. They have her like uh, off stage somewhere, and then she's brought out, and they ask her, hey, did you like the cho- the guy your father chose? He hadn't yet come around, you know, around the corner. And she had no idea, because I guess she couldn't even see what was going on wherever they put her, because she doesn't know he- who he chose. So uh, th- that's a little odd. But it was a Father's Day episode. And it was 1967, not 2023, so uh, maybe not so bad. But it, it was a little bit strange. Uh, I can only imagine that the 
that the three guys who were competing for a, a chance to go on a date with Melinda were rather daunted to have to have Groucho <laughs> Marx asking them because the whole point you're supposed to be clever and witty and fun as as one of the three contestants. How are you going to match what Groucho's putting out? You know, uh, and they don't. I would say I'd give them about, about a C plus in how well they they do it. They're all good looking guys, so they've got that going for them. They get marks for trying, certainly. Yeah. What do you have to offer my daughter if she decides to marry you? Would you, would you support me in the manner to which I'm accustomed? <laughs> that is a question that there is some question about. <laughs> but she would live with a charming, handsome, aggressive, ambitious, good-looking guy. Me! <laughs> you mean you plan on marrying her? <laughs> I'm, after hearing about myself, I think I'm going to marry me. <laughs> One of them says when they're asked, they're each asked to say something, say anything. Um, And in what I guess is a recurring theme of our episode here, one of them quotes Mel Brooks. He says, uh, nine out of 15 people revolve around the sun. Um, That's a line from the first 2000-year-old man album, um, the sketch called The Astronaut. Interesting. I didn't know that because I wonder because that guy was spewing all kinds of random stuff and and probably yeah, he's... I assumed they had a basis like they were coming from somewhere. And his first answer, Groucho's first question was pretty feeble. He says, "Say the secret word." He first said, "Just say the secret word," and they didn't know what to do. <laughs> then they kind of added, "Say the secret word, and you, you might win a date with my daughter." But none of them did very well. But but the first guy was something about you can live without something, but you can't live without water. And I assume that's a quote from something because it made no sense in the context, and it was only yeah. funny for its strangeness. So I'd like to know. Uh, I'd, I'd like to know where that came from. Uh, the first guy, it, when they do just do an intro and they go, "Hi, Groucho," that's all they say. Uh, the third one, who's a gentleman from Arkansas, says, uh, "Hi, Dad." You know, implying that he's going to win and and not only win but but marry Melinda. And I thought that was that was kind of funny. It, hats off to him. So yeah, I won't I won't say who we picked because I don't want to spoil it. I've already spoiled enough of it. <laughs> Spoiler warning, yeah. <laughs> the date. And 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 they often went on little trips and stuff on the dating game. But this one was crazy. They were going to Kenya or Kenya, as they say on the show, to William Holden's William, William Holden had a safari uh thing there, and you yes. can go and thankfully it was photography safaris. Uh but I mean, I thought of every first date I've had that didn't go well. And you're sitting there deciding, can I even endure dessert uh, with this with this woman who isn't interested in me or I'm not interested in her? But imagine heading off on your first date to Kenya and finding it's not going well. You, you find an hour into the flight that you have nothing in common and that she has no interest in you and loathes you, perhaps. And you still and haven't met William Holden yet. <laughs> That's yes. still to come. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if any of us ever manages to reach Melinda... And and she's willing to answer some questions for us. Of course, there are so many more important questions. But part of me wants to know how the date mm. went. So I want to get that out there. If anyone does meet her and she is willing to answer a few questions, make that your last question. See if see if we can find out how the date went. Do you remember what the uh, the unlucky contestants take home with them? No, they get a record player. And a Bill Cosby LP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. 
but it was his newest one at the time. You know, so, so that's good. <laughs> I absolutely love this 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 show. I I have to say it's the only uh, episode that I've ever seen of this program. I have no idea what's going on, and that's that's why I love it. I don't watch any uh television i haven't watched any television as it's being broadcast for over 10 years now we have to pay for a license that's god knows how many hundreds of pounds uh so so i knocked that on the head over a decade ago apart from when i'm in hotel rooms i never ever watch any broadcast television but whenever we're abroad we go to italy quite often uh in the hotel i'm absolutely glued to the television and and people ask me why and the answer is because it's not for me i don't speak the language it's not being done for me and i have no idea what's going on and that i find strangely seductive i i love watching <laughs> television that is completely incomprehensible to me and this is like a version of that in my own language but it but it might as well be in italian <laughs> Well, the influence of the dating game and other shows like it, uh, Love Connection and so on, is certainly felt in the reality television landscape um, that uh, we have now or that Matthew has in Italy once in a while. <laughs> uh, you know, at shows like The Bachelor, um, uh, reality shows that purport to uh, convert single people into happy couples one way or another, or more to the point, to provide uh, gripping drama on the way to... <laughs> to that happy ending or the lack thereof. Well, that uh, I guess that takes us to the end of the dating game and on to a very unusual Groucho appearance on television, which I have to say is, I think, one of my very favorite appearances of his, uh, one of my favorite interviews or conversations with Groucho, um, partly because of all the things that are unusual about it. On July 7th, 1967, Groucho appeared on the program Firing Line with William F. Buckley. William F. Buckley Jr. was an American writer and editor and public intellectual regarded as the father of modern American conservatism. He was the founder of the National Review magazine. And oddly enough, there is a bit of a Marx Brothers connection there because Maury Riskind, a great Marx Brothers writer, and later on in his career, a conservative political commentator and columnist, was a contributor to the National Review um, in two ways. He was an early writer for the magazine, and he also gave Buckley a good deal of the money that he needed to start the magazine. Um, there is a Riskind comment toward the end of this appearance, which makes me think Riskind may have been the connection that got mm. Groucho uh, onto Buckley's show. As Groucho and Buckley both acknowledge, they're not exactly, uh, they don't travel in the same company much of the time. Um, Buckley these days is perhaps um, most often mentioned for his feud with Gore Vidal, with whom he had a series of um, famously contentious televised debates in 1968. And Buckley hosted this program on PBS Firing Line for over 30 years. So, why don't you ask William F. Buckley to kill the spider? <laughs> um, a, a spider that I believe was as big as a Buick. Yes. This is yes. A, yes. Yeah. So true. This is a good episode for uh, reincorporation, <laughs> isn't it? 
Firing Line is a discussion show. It also featured Charles Dickerman Williams as a kind of moderator. He was referred to in his role on the show as the chairman, um, and he would act as a sort of judge and jury and moderator throughout this debate show. Uh, Williams was an American lawyer and free speech advocate. At one point during this conversation, Groucho says of Williams, uh, he says, do you know that this man was the attorney general for President Taft? What, What Groucho means there is that Williams was a clerk for Taft on the Supreme Court, um, Subsequent to his presidency, Taft served on the Supreme Court, and Williams was one of his clerks. So Groucho's version of that is uh, (laughs) that he was the attorney general for President Taft. Um, Well, uh, there's a lot to to talk about in this episode. Um, I've got a couple of uh, uh, specific things I want to mention, and then we can open it up. Uh, First of all, as the conversation between Groucho and Buckley gets going... It's immediately apparent what a strange presence William F. Buckley was. Um, There's all kinds of reasons to have all kinds of opinions about him and his work. But it is certainly true that um, there has not been a voice like that in America's political discourse in a long time. Um, And certainly through that lens, it's very interesting and even refreshing to listen to him. I thought of Bob Gassell very early on in this episode, because in his introduction (laughs) of Groucho, Buckley tosses off the names of some of the classic Marx Brothers films for which Groucho is famous. The movies are classics, Animal Crackers, A Night at the Opera, A Day at the Races, Go West. (laughs) Somehow, Bob, I think he did that to get to you. (laughs) Uh, The question, now, these firing line episodes often, uh, they are premised on a proposition or question which the conversation will go on to investigate, prove or disprove. The question for this episode is, is the world funny? Groucho pretty quickly concludes that the world is not funny, uh, that it's a serious world, um, that there are moments of humor, but no, life in general is not something Groucho (laughs) finds funny. Um, Buckley pushes back only as far as saying that Groucho and other people like him help make the world funny, make the world more enjoyable for the rest of us. And in his answer about what a serious world it is, Groucho mentions riots, specifically a couple of weeks ago. Um, This is July of 1967, uh, the famous long, hot summer of 67. There were more than 100 riots across the United States that summer in protest of racism and housing policy and other evils. And so it is right in the thick of a very tense political moment uh, that Groucho and Buckley sit down for this conversation. This is another appearance that I like a great deal because not only do we get the serious Groucho, which we don't get very often, but we also get a Groucho who, who understands that he's allowed to be serious. And so we get a relaxed Groucho, which is uh, every bit as rare uh, as a serious Groucho. Uh, and I think if you, if you want to see the real Groucho, the private Groucho, the Groucho, you know, that you might well find yourself talking to if you were in his, uh, you know, in, in his living room over, over a couple of drinks one evening, I think this is, this is where you go. Uh, and I think it, it's, it's a real treat to see uh, uh, an expansive and calm uh, and very intelligent Groucho. No doubt about it. I, I would echo both your sentiments. It, I think it's a real treasure. I think the show is odd. 
and and I think William Buckley is a creature from another uh, planet. Uh, <laughs> it, not because I may disagree with his politics, uh, but he's just such an odd figure that if if you put him in, a he movie, is very strange, isn't he? he yeah. He's like Peter Lorre, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the little the darting tongue and 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 people yes, and, yeah. and Preston's used to do him uh, often because he was so distinctive uh, and his insistence and and I love uh, a strong vocabulary I, rec- I I I admire that in anyone but he goes out of his way to use words that ninety percent of the people watching if not ninety nine percent will have to go look up and that's just a weird sort of arrogance you know he wants you to know that he knows this word that you have no idea what it means uh, now noah may say no i understood i knew every word he said there were a couple that i, I haven't yet looked up but i would have to 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 fully understand them <laughs> so he's just as strange as they come but was very influential and 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 such a large figure in his day and i would say not entirely forgotten today but certainly uh his influence and the role he once played has faded. I mean, obviously he's gone, so it would fade, but but I don't think it's remembered just sort of how prominent he was. I think having the moderator is very strange. I have no idea why that guy was there, except for Groucho. To, Groucho had more fun making fun of him than he did uh, Buckley. More jokes were, were headed. And they were gentle. You know, He wasn't being rough on the guy, but he was having fun with him. But there just seems to be no purpose for him to be there. But maybe it was because it was Groucho and not uh, an actual debate. Like, was he not normally there then on, on that program? Again, it's the only one I've seen. I think he was. I think he was a fixture. Yeah. But um, I think it was less of a debate than maybe it usually was on the show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because they didn't Probably, even disagree. Yeah. They, you know, Groucho said it's not a funny world. If they thought he was going to say, yes, it is a funny world, they they blew it. Uh, he says it's not, and Buckley can't really claim it is either, except for saying, you know, there's humor in it. So really, it was more of a discussion than a debate, and so you didn't need a moderator. Isn't it interesting about Buckley's personality and presence, and and it goes to some of Matthew's point, that to see Groucho uh, faced with such a fundamentally pompous figure and not take the stuffing out of him, you know, uh, Groucho, he even says at one point when when people heard I was going to be on this show, they were expecting us to fight, you know, Um, and they both seem to be going out of their way not to do that. But, you know, it's a little strange. Buckley, in his way, is just as, you know, pompous and pretentious as anybody Groucho ever encountered in a Marx Brothers movie. But Groucho is extremely respectful. Well, he, he is a genuine intellect, isn't he? He's not, he's yeah. not, a, he's not a fraud. That's I mean, um, Dick Cavett, uh, again, uh, similarly, w- was a, a very good friend of his, uh, admired him greatly, and, and was a very close friend. In his, uh, his uh, compilation book talk show, there are actually two chapters about his friendship with Buckley. They used to holiday together they, with their wives, and uh, he has enormous respect for him, both as a, as a man and as, as an intellect. So I guess that's what Groucho is uh, responding to there. That's an unlikely friendship, I have to say. It's a little hard for me to imagine mm. Dick Cavett having fun yeah. with William F. Buckley, but we don't know the man William F. Buckley. Maybe he, he exactly. Maybe I mean, that's the, not the, the man he describes in the man he describes in those chapters. You know, is 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 very witty and and self deprecating, and and he quotes a couple of examples where where uh, Cavett was was able to get one up on him, where he misquotes or, or misattributes a quote uh, to Oscar Wilde that wasn't Oscar Wilde, and Cavett was able to uh, you know to 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 uh, g- gently, uh, you know, deflate him in that way, and, and he seems to have responded, you know, uh, in, in good in good spirit. He probably respected him for for the correction, you know, respected yeah. that Cavett knew better and, and corrected him. You know, some tough guys, even intellectual tough guys, uh, appreciate it when someone's 
able and willing to push back. So, mm, yeah, definitely. Among the bracingly real Groucho moments in this conversation, early on, Buckley identifies misanthropy as a major theme of Groucho's and, and of the Groucho letters. And Groucho says, uh, without thinking about it or, or doing anything for effect, Groucho says, I am essentially a very sad man. Uh, he says it mm. in the most straightforward way possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very interesting moment. We all sort of know that to be true, but just to hear him say it that way with no yeah. comic decoration. Uh, yeah, it stung uh, a little bit. Caught me uh, for know, a moment. Yeah. Yeah. He also seems to have been censored a couple of times early on. At one point, Groucho says, I'm a lovable old. And then he says, I'm essentially a. And at both times, there's a little conspicuous silence while his mouth keeps moving. Mm. Uh, I don't have a good guess, but. Uh, Listeners, write in with uh, after you watch this clip. Let us know what you think Groucho might have been saying uh, in the. Room. I have a guess on the first word. I thought the first word was bastard. Uh, right. I'm a lovable old bastard. Yeah, yeah. I think it was. <laughs> if I can just derail the conversation briefly, yeah. this is something that has that's haunted me for years. So yes, if there are any lip readers listening, uh, a tell us what Groucho is saying there. But also, if you've got the Dick Cavett DVD set. Of uh, of comedians, what does the film critic Rex Reed say about John Wayne? He describes John Wayne in the film True Grit as something which is which is it's converted to silence, but his mouth is is in full view. Uh, this has haunted me for many years. What does Rex Reed say, please? Okay, back to the conversation. <laughs> hey, if anyone knows, yeah, let us know, and we will we will celebrate you on this show. <laughs> Uh, Well, um, I want to play a clip from this conversation um, in which Groucho, he describes himself as an alter ego. Um, It's interesting because it's an acknowledgement of the collaboration between Groucho and his writers on the classic Marx Brothers projects. Um, It's also interesting to hear how aware of himself Groucho is as an audience surrogate. Uh, Let's listen to this clip. I would say that uh, I'm a kind of an alter ego. I think between what I have invented myself and what the writers have written for me over the years, I have said the things that no one else has dared to say publicly. Why? Why? Because the audience loves it. Uh If you have a general, like I had General Bradley on the quiz show, he's a nice man, very nice man, and might even conceivably be a good general. But I kid them all through the show, and the audience loves that because they don't get a chance to do that mm-hmm. to mayors or politicians or bank presidents, people like that. And people enjoy that because nobody else does that. Well... It doesn't have to even be funny. It has to be a lack of respect mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for uh, somebody who is important. Yeah, there's a little bit of candor about his creative process that we don't usually get from Groucho. Mm. I think he's right on the mark, especially in the 60s. When the when interest in Groucho and his brothers uh, was on so much on the rise, I think that's very much what that was about. They spoke nonsense to authority, stood up to authority a bit, and uh, you know, I I think that's what renewed interest in them at that time. The idea that sometimes being disrespectful is even more important than being funny, or that's the the ticket to the laugh has to do with showing disrespect sometimes uh, more than uh, than wit. Um, it's just a real self-aware moment from Groucho. 
Uh, and it's interesting to hear him describe himself that way. I've said the things that no one else has dared to say publicly. Um, and then he, shortly after that, he turns around and says, most comedians go on the stage to please their audiences, and I never did. So he simultaneously has an awareness that he has this approach that pleases the audience, but he disowns the possibility that that's his intention. Yeah, it's the closest he comes, I think, isn't it, to acknowledging that that his his comedy, his style of comedy, his approach to comedy is a kind of revenge on the world, which which you know you can if you want to to attribute it to to various things in his childhood, you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to. But but he he fundamentally stands in opposition, whilst you know being a beloved entertainer. It's it's an odd dichotomy, and and he he seems to uh, to, to hit. hit hit the nail on the head there yeah and he's, he speaks all of these truths and all these kind of revealing self analysis analyses in the appearance which is easily the least disruptive of the television appearances we're talking mm. about here i mean he really is playing by the rules of the show he's not there to get laughs although he is funny here and he does occasionally take control of the the scene there seems to be only a very small studio audience he makes a reference at one point to humiliating williams in front of eight people um, and <laughs> at another point he refers to the seats you know he says i'm talking to seats so i guess that may also be something he doesn't have a huge crowd to to entertain here um, which gives that intimacy and, and candor even more room to run uh, he speaks very movingly, doesn't he, about entertaining uh, seriously injured soldiers during World War II. That was yes. a, a remark, remarkable sequence, I thought. Uh, I didn't really know about that. And I didn't know he did so much of it. And he, he speaks of it beautifully and touching, very touching. Yes. And I'm not, I mean, we're aware of his USO shows and things, but I've not heard him on this subject in this way, uh, anything close to this anywhere else. Right. Yeah. I mean, he speaks of people who have lost arms and legs, you know, and I didn't. Mm. And, and and how do you how do you be funny with a group of people who are dealing with that? I mean, really. And he ultimately says the same way you'd be funny for anyone else. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. He is a man who felt deeply, you know, who, 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 in, in, you know, would, would, would sit up into the night and and think long and hard and, and and feel deeply about all sorts of things. And it's one of the reasons why I get so annoyed at the, the, you know, the the, the kind of um, uh, yellow journalist version of him that he was some kind of monster, you know, because he wasn't able to uh, to hold down a marriage as you know as so many people aren't. And it's it's you know, alongside that, he he was a man of. Of, of, I think, considerable uh, emotional depth. I found it interesting that he spoke a bit of the burden of being a court jester. Yeah. You know, of sort of always expected to be funny. And and it was in London, but I don't remember exactly who it was, but I, I think an ambassador or someone and his wife who had him to dinner, and he was very funny, and then he, they had him to dinner the next week and the week after that and the week after that. And and he hinted that, you know, maybe his, his uh, appeal had dropped off a uh, week by week because you know he maybe he wasn't in the mood to be funny the second week or or just wasn't as successful at it or who knows uh, I, but um not ever to compare myself to groucho but as someone who's been a wisecracker my whole life and that's sort of part of my identity it's how people think of me um as you know as a funny guy there is a certain burden to it even though it's also a great pleasure and, and a blessing in in many ways if if you're able to be successfully funny um 
But yeah, there's there also is a certain burden to it because maybe people won't take you seriously. Maybe they only want laughs from you, and they won't. And they won't. You know. And here was an opportunity. This entire show was a, an opportunity to uh, to show us a different side of himself. Uh, let's listen to this next clip on the subject of escape in humor. What I find interesting here is Groucho talking about the value and the therapeutic value of laughter, even perhaps in the absence of humor. He also tells a, a, a story that's familiar to us about the time Zeppo understudied for him when he had appendicitis in Chicago. Mr. Marks, do you think there's an aspect of escape in humor? Oh, of course there is. Of course there is. I think if it wasn't for that, I think most everybody would commit suicide. There must be things that you have to laugh at. And I know when my brothers, when we were together, it was always when things were most disastrous that we laughed the most, most hysterically. Maybe it wasn't even true laughter. It may have been kind of insane laughter, but that's when we laughed the most. I must tell you about an incident. I was coming into Chicago on the train, and we were going to play the Palace Theater. Zeppa was in the act then. And uh, about 50 miles out of Chicago, I got pains in my side. And then when I got to the hotel, I had three doctors looking at me. It was the appendix. And it had to come out immediately. So they took me to Michael Reese Hospital. And Zeppel went on, who was the straight man, he went on to my place. And I picked up the Chicago Tribune the next morning, reviewed by Percy Hammond. said, Groucho was never as funny as he was this afternoon at the Palace Theater. And I was scheduled to stay in that hospital for a week, and I was out in three days. <laughs> uh, interesting and very vivid uh, image, isn't it, of the Marx Brothers uh, in desperate vaudevillian moments laughing maniacally just in order to get themselves through the day. And wouldn't we love to uh, somehow be able to hear some of those uh, conversations and the jokes that led, led to that laughter? He acknowledged that it wasn't always based on a joke, but more almost desperation, laughter out of desperation. But I'm sure there were some great jokes, too. It's pretty unusual that we get that kind of moment uh, reminiscing about the glory days of the Marx Brothers, but not with a particular anecdote. He's not striving for any particular effect here. He's genuinely remembering something from his days on the road with the brothers and sharing it spontaneously. I'll take all that I can get. Yeah. Here the conversation takes a bit of a turn and they discuss things we're talking about, um, especially but not exclusively on Twitter these days, uh, about sensitivity to humor, about the appropriateness of racial and ethnic humor. Um, and it's a very interesting run. In the lead up to it, uh, Groucho talks about a joke that he doesn't go so far as to tell. Um, he, he says that he... He can't. He won't tell this joke because it would only be funny to show people. And he says that the joke involves Adolf Eichmann. I think <laughs> what he's talking about here is uh, Larry Gelbart's line. Larry Gelbart once said, if Hitler is still alive, I hope he's out of town with a musical. Uh, and that sounds very much like what Groucho is talking about. Uh, he says, you know, it's a joke you would only get if you know what it's like to be out of town with a show. So I think that's the reference. Uh, but it's interesting that he, he references this joke without explicating it in any way. Ah, that's interesting. I, I did wonder, because the only, the only Eichmann joke I, I can remember from around that time is one that Woody Allen used to tell in his stand-up act, which was that when he was offered the vodka ad, uh, they got his name from a list that was in Eichmann's pocket. Yes. 
That's right. So that, that was that, that was the best I could come up with. So so yes, I I think you've got it. I think so. It's of course entirely possible that I mean, I don't think Hitler is one of the few historical figures who's never confused with any other historical figures, uh, even his closest associates. But perhaps that that line was going around with Eichmann, uh, you know, instead of Hitler mm. sometimes. Um, also, while we're on the subject, you know, Groucho speaks about the Holocaust here and is obviously and, you know, understandably deeply hurt by the thought of it. Uh, there are occasional references to Groucho's feelings about fascism and genocide and World War II elsewhere in the known works. Um, but here, talking, he speaks fairly specifically about the death camps. Um, and uh, it's another example from this appearance of something just a little jarring because it's unfamiliar. This very serious, very bitter response to the then relatively recent events of the Second World War. And on that same subject, he does tell the Churchill story now with Duck Soup as the film that <laughs> Churchill was watching. Could have, could have been any of them, really. <laughs> All right. Um, in this clip, Groucho and Buckley discuss a subject that has a lot of currency right now, the subject of sensitivity in humor and the appropriateness or inappropriateness of racial and ethnic and religiously based humor. Here's what Groucho and Buckley have to say on this topic in the summer of 67. Isn't it true uh, that uh, uh, cer certain jokes, that, at least what were considered jokes 10, 20 years ago, are now uh, unsayable as a result of certain tensions that exist, for instance, certain racial jokes? Mm -hmm. You couldn't have a minstrel show now, could you, no. in Hollywood? No. Uh, do you regret this? Well, I liked minstrel shows because I was brought up in that era. But I think it's wrong today. I think the colored people have such a struggle today that I don't think there should be any jokes connected with them. Well, but uh, then, should, then shouldn't it... Uh also be said that they oughtn't to have been Irish jokes back when they were having a, a terrible time and dying like flies in Ireland. They shouldn't have been Jewish jokes when they were fighting their way out, out of the ghettos and so on and so forth. I still but, resent you Jewish jokes your, publicly you? and Irish jokes and Catholic jokes well, and did, all kinds of jokes. Did, did you ever tell Jewish jokes yourself? I never, spoke, I never said a Jewish word on the stage in 50 years. I didn't say a Jewish word. I said a, a Jewish joke. No. I might tell you one when the show's over, yeah. but I never tell them what? publicly. Oh, this is I don't I regard myself as a Jew when I'm publicly performing. Yeah. I'm an actor. Maybe a bad one, but I'm an actor. Well, in, in, other, in other words, out of a sense of deference to people who would not consider them funny, you wouldn't say them to a general audience. You would only say them to somebody whose who, who who reactions and tested and knew. And would understand it. Yeah. I resent Myron Cohn I with that know. long farrago of... Jewish jokes. Yeah. I, I think the Jews should have a dignity now, the same as the Catholics and the Protestants. Well, but is, I, is, I must tell you what number no, Johnson... No, wait a minute, I, I don't want to get off this, because is, okay. isn't it a sense... I knew eventually you were going to make this serious. We were having fun before. <laughs> Why don't you keep it that way? Well, well tell, tell me if it begins to hurt. No, it never hurts. Right. I'm proud of being a Jew, particularly the <laughs> week before last. How do you feel, Judge? So do I. You have no animosity towards we people, do you? No. no. Isn't he a charmer? I... Huh? 
You're crazy no, if you ever to, lose I him. Is this, uh... He's a big asset on your show, Willie. Yeah, I agree. You keep him on there. I agree. You know, so I'll, many I'll people you, said yeah. to me, when I said I was going on the Buckley show, they said, gee, let us know when it is. They thought we were going to have the damnedest fights up here, politically and every other way. And it's all nonsense. I don't feel that deeply about politics. Yeah. Or, or about anything else at my age. I'd be silly. Well, you feel pretty deeply about um, the subject we just touched. Disparaging people, That's I right. think, You're publicly, I'm opposed yeah. to. But um, isn't, it, isn't it sometimes considered a sign of a sense of security by people that they can tolerate jokes about themselves. Let's say Jewish instance, jokes. Or no, say now, the well, royal, let me stop you for say a minute. The, say the royal family in England. They wouldn't yeah. much object to a joke involving the royal family. Because Why should they? They have most of the money in England. That's right. And all they do is uh, put down flowers on uh, statues. Yeah. So, so <laughs> Same as the pigeons do. So it's, it's secure, right? Yes. <laughs> let me tell you something. Four weeks ago, when NASA says, I don't want to defeat Israel. I want to erase them. That's when I feel sensitive about jokes about Jews. First of all, Matthew, is that true about the royal family? Yes, it, absolutely. <laughs> that's that's what they do. Is they put down flowers on statues. <laughs> I said that's that's probably the only time Buckley's been called Willie by by a guest, isn't it? <laughs> he calls him that several times, and one time he's asked per, his permission. He says it's okay. <laughs> But yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Groucho's uh, relationship with, with, with ethnic humour, because it was always something that was... Um, well, I mean, at one time, it was part of his own uh, his own repertoire, wasn't it? Was it was an ethnic characterization? But I think he, he's coming at it from from an outsider mentality, isn't he? It, it, that that's that's the essence. He felt an outsider as a as a as a Jewish uh, child of Jewish immigrants. Um, vaudeville performers see themselves as outsiders. So, so he's always very keenly had that outsider mentality. But, uh, but ethnic humour is, is something that I think always interested him. He, he speaks in a fairly late interview about what, what other comedians he liked in the 30s, and he nominates Moran and Mac, who, uh, you know, whether or not you think them problematic, they were virtually forgotten. But he but he name checks them. When he has asked what television he likes, he says he's, he he likes uh, Sanford and Son. And he says to the interviewer, "Do you do you like the two Schwarzers?" Um, funnily enough, I I um, the film historian and uh, Chaplin biographer David Robinson uh, lives in Bath, and I, and I quite unexpectedly found myself sat next to him on on the bus one evening, um, and I and I we got chatting, and uh, I mentioned that I'd written some books on the Marx Brothers, uh, and he and he was telling me about the the time when he met uh, Groucho, uh, and and again he very sort of conspiratorially told him a Schwarzer joke, um, so so it was it was something that was that was very much uh, kind of on on his on his cultural radar, wasn't it? I think for at all times, it's interesting to hear Groucho expressing positions on the subject of humor that that don't grant humor a carte blanche you know i i think many including many who love groucho would probably expect to hear him express more the opposite view that um it's all about the laugh that uh humor reigns supreme that um you know it doesn't much matter uh if you offend people or who's insulted by your humor that that it's um a great threat to the self-expression of the comic artist to caution him against uh violating uh, cultural sensitivities 
Um, it's very interesting and informative to hear him this way. Uh, yet, as you allude to, Matthew, uh, he's a little conflicted here, even maybe more so than he realizes. He he says flat out, I never said a Jewish word on the stage in 50 years. And we know that's not true. I, I guess what he mm, means what a to snorer. say is that he's... Yeah, I, I guess he means to say that he's never done humor at the expense of Jews. Yes, I, I, um, that's what I took it to mean. But although even that, you know, there's the Spaniards and, yeah. and so on. You know, the... yes. Uh, also, he in this area, he's so comfortable expressing real disdain for another comedian. He says in, in this clip, he mentions Myron Cohen not very favorably, and then later on, he repeats um, with fire in his eyes. He says, "I loathe." Myron Cohen, uh, Myron Cohen, Borscht Belt comedian who actually spoke in almost like William F. Buckley until he got to the punchline, <laughs> which, which would usually be in Yiddish. Um, but uh, obviously Groucho feels, as my own grandparents did, that comically Yiddish intonation is offensive or uh, is very badly juxtaposed with the persecution of Jews that was so raw at the time. My dad said something once when I was a child that has kind of meant more to me as the years have gone by. Uh, when I was a, a child, as many people uh, are, I, I liked what I perceived as very cutting-edge uh, comedy, uh, which often strayed into areas of, of bad taste. Uh, and I was, you know, I was all for this. And, and my dad very much wasn't. He was, he seemed to me to be a, a you know, a boring old fuddy-duddy as far as, as far as, uh, you know, sick humour goes, bad taste humour goes. Um, and I, I gave him the, uh, the, what I now see as the rather facile Monty Python defence of, if you can talk about anything in drama, why can't you talk about anything in comedy? And he said something which, which, which I, I dismissed at the time and I now think is right, which is, there's an infinite number of things you can make a joke about. You can make a joke about anything. So once you've run out of all the other things, then maybe you can stray into that area. But until you've run out of all the other things, you don't need to. And and I, I, I now think there's there's a lot of merit in that. Yeah, very interesting take. And there is a lot of merit in Groucho's answer here. And I think... Uh, I really encourage people to watch this entire appearance on YouTube. It's the whole show. It's, it's uh, I think, 47 minutes long. Um, but there's really a lot of substance to it, and it culminates in this final stretch of the conversation, which is mostly on this subject. Uh, it's very interesting and um, revealing, and I think um, regardless of how much you agree or disagree, I feel like it's good for us to hear Groucho Marx say, disparaging people publicly. On general principle, I'm opposed to it. <laughs> I think Groucho shows perhaps an evolution because, you know, he came up in a world of show business that was very reliant on ethnic humor. I'm sure it stung at times, as, as Matthew alluded to, but he was playing an ethnic type himself and countless other acts uh, trafficked in various ethnic stereo and religious stereotypes. And he mentioned that he used to like minstrel shows, but he has come... You know, at this point in 1967, is it? Do I have that right? Yeah. Come to understand that they were hurtful. You know, maybe they maybe they were okay for their time, uh, but not today. Um, and so that that's the sort of growth you'd like to see in almost anyone. 
And we all hope we evolve in, in that way, but it's lovely to see it's happened for him. Um, you know, there's so many comics nowadays who act so put upon because they can't joke about trans people or they can't joke about this or they can't joke about that. And they just act like it's the greatest crime uh, of the age that they're being restricted from making these kind of jokes. And here's the giant among giants saying, no, it's, it's not a problem that we can't make or we don't make certain kinds of jokes. You know, it makes the whiners it, it look pretty bad in my eyes. At the same time, though, he he is. I don't think he would go further than to say it's a matter of personal choice. I think he's saying that that he wouldn't. But at the same time, uh, he, I think he I think he would resent any any uh, top down imposition to stop somebody else doing it if if they so chose. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. One of the one of the weaknesses in the uh, instinctive response, um, you know, that if um, if a joke or if a, a work of comedy is accused of being cruel or insensitive to uh, any group of marginalized people, the, the instinctive response is often to respond to that feedback as though it is censorship. But it usually isn't. It's, it's not that you can't make those jokes it's that there might be consequences for it you know um and and that seems to be what groucho is getting at here it's interesting to hear a thoughtful enlightened you know humanistic mind that was born in 1890 making these comments in 1967 you know groucho's terminology here is is fairly out of date you know um but he is using what in 1967 was considered the correct way to refer, you know, he refers to colored people. We don't use that term anymore for good reasons, but uh, but it was the preferred term in 1967, and Groucho is using it uh, conscientiously. You know, um, he is uh, positioning himself as an inoffensive, deep thinker, um, and I guess some of this is remarkable only in juxtaposition with our image of Groucho, um, but it is quite remarkable that way. Any uh, closing thoughts on Firing Line or Buckley or any of this? Just that, yes, everyone should should watch it. It's it's a remarkable clip. It is. I, it is, um, as uh, Matthew said at the beginning of this segment, um, uh, among the most real hours you'll ever spend. I think with Groucho mm. Marx. Yeah, it's it's it really does feel like you're 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 in his in his house with him. I think, which is rare, if not unique. Yeah, and even the toupee is not so bad here <laughs> i have something to say about toupees uh, at some point i'll, I'll wait uh, for go ahead moment. let's well my i just think it's sad that well not sad that's overstating it but but that he clung to the toupee when he is seen bald he looks perfectly fine on one of the i guess it's the is it the second guest appearance on what's my line uh, because he puts yeah. on one time he has like a Russian fur, not fur, but a kind of furry hat and it falls off at one point and he quickly puts it back on. I mean, he rushes to get that hat back on. I, I think maybe Arlene takes it off, uh, but it's, it's like right back on with it. But then he comes out bald one time and it look, you know, he looks just fine. Uh, he didn't need to wear the silly hat, although maybe he liked the hat. I, I, I don't love the hat. That may put me on the outside looking into. No, uh, I don't love the hat. Uh, but I had, there's the one, the one that we see on the cabbage show, the brown one that's kind of long in the back. 
and he also has his mustache very obviously <laughs> dyed, and he's wearing a brown jacket. It's like a symphony of horror in brown. And and that With the infamous <laughs> dead raccoon. Oh, the dead raccoon! Which, it's um... just astonishing. Please go bald. But it's one of the two uh, most important revelations for me from the from the Cavett documentary is that is that the, that was actually his uh, his skidoo wig, uh, <laughs> but but applied not by a, a skilled uh, no. wig fitter, but by Groucho in front of his mirror that morning. <laughs> yeah, I, I like him bald. I wish I wish he had just gone with that. But that's yeah. obviously a minor criticism, a very minor. But I feel that way. Well. Uh- perhaps to soothe the wound of all the ridiculous headgear we've seen Groucho sporting in some of these (laughs) clips. Um, I've chosen one Dick Cavett show clip in which he is wearing the beret, which I think we can all agree is the preferred, other than just natural bald Groucho, uh, I'd rather see him in the beret than in the ridiculous golf hats or the furry Russian hat that was his wife's or or any of that. and I, I chose this clip because um, it it isn't played uh, in its entirety, or there's there's not much of this in the Cavett documentary. Um, and I think it's there are some interesting points here uh, from Groucho. Um, so um, I'll talk about it briefly, and then we can talk more generally about uh, Cavett and Groucho's work with Cavett and the recent documentary. The clip I've selected is from the Cavett Show of December 16th, 1971. And it's a fairly brief exchange between Groucho and Dan Rowan. Dan Rowan of the comedy team Rowan and Martin. Their television show Laugh-In was, of course, a cultural phenomenon from 1968 to 1973. So this appearance is right in the middle of the Laugh-In years. And as this clip begins, Groucho is asking Cavett, are we on? It's obvious that there's something Groucho wants to say on the air, and he's been sort of given a segment to have this out. Oh, it's all... Are we on? It's us, yes. One night I met you in Chasen's. Yes, sir. We were both having dinner, not at the same table. You were sitting with a, a group, five or six other people, and I walked up to you, not knowing you, and I said, I think you're one of the greatest straight men I've ever seen. And you took umbrage at this. I was trying to compliment you, and you thought I was trying to insult you. I still think you're one of the greatest straight men I've ever seen. And I'm still taking umbrage. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I appreciate it's it. true. I want to tell you something. There has never been a good comedian that didn't have a good straight man. Oh, you go down man. through the ages of all the great comedians. They always had a great straight man. In my case, it happened to be Chico, because he was my brother. Yeah. But he did what an older guy, if it hadn't been my brother, would have been doing for me. But and, Chico also, I'm sorry. And I thought he was offended that night. Yeah. No, no, actually, what it was, you've told me that since, as a matter of fact, one evening I'll probably over tell you again when I see you. <laughs> Well, I, I, I thought no I'd explained it to you one night over at Sidney Sheldon's house when we were there for dinner to see a movie, and you told me that. And I appreciate it very much, because not very many people, when you're working as a team, uh, ever say very much to this the straight half of the team. The straighter uh, half, let's say. Well, I don't think um, the straight man means anything, but it's very yeah. important. And it's, uh, well, you know, for a long time, you get off stage, and uh, people will go rushing right past you, and... And Pat Dick on the back say, you are the funniest son of a gun I ever saw, and I'm standing there ordering a drink, you know. 
Uh, yeah. And so the night that Groucho did that to me at Chasen's, number one, it's a very unusual thing for anybody to say. Number yeah. two, here is the guy who is the classic comedian to all people in comedy, mm -hmm. talking to me personally, which is a little discomforting in, in the first place. Yeah. And in the third place, I don't... Uh, I'm, I'm really fairly uncomfortable when people say things like that to me. I don't know what to say. Well, I didn't I, say I really it deliberately to, and and so I was I was I, I wasn't offended. I was simply a little embarrassed and and uh, awestruck at the company I was in. Well, I'm flattered by that, but the whole thing is a big lie. <laughs> <laughs> now here's your chance I to be a straight man. <laughs> I meant it when I said it, and I still mean it. Oh, you're very nice. And I watch you, and I marvel. The equanimity and the style and class. Do you ever get you ever get tired of people copying you? We, you know, we. No, I regard it as a, as flattery now. It's a whole style. You know, there mm -hmm. are some things. For instance, one of one of the very talented members of our company is Richard Dawson, Dickie Dawson, and there are certain things he is cast in which can only be read a la Groucho, and that's, that's what right. you see in many cast directions. There are many script directions. You'll see red like Groucho. Or a la Groucho. Or a la right. Groucho. And, you know, it's a style. There's it's a, on it's the an other individual hand, definite I regard style. it as flattery when people do that. You should. Yeah. Walter Matthau does that. He told me, he says, I've been imitating you all my life. Yeah. And he told me that he said, the night that the odd couple opened in New York, his wife, who was used to be Soroyan's wife, I don't know if you know her, <laughs> very bright and sharp. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody. This has nothing to do with it except I'm trying to identify the character. Okay. And the night that he said goodbye to his wife and he walked to the elevator in New York on his no. way to do the opening night of Odd Couple, she called him back from the elevator and she says, Walter, tonight, not quite so much Groucho Marx, huh? But he took that kindly. I assume. He's proud of it. He's yeah. always telling me that There's he's... There's a line reading that you do, I mean, a kind of inflection that has just entered the world of comedy. It's low, I, low, low. I used to love, on, on, on Groucho's uh, television show, I used to love to wait. I waited for the commercials because he has the most insincere voice in the world. You know? <laughs> when he starts to tell you something is so, you know that it isn't. This, <laughs> this is true. This is true. Great, one of the great con men. Yes, I would have made it on the Chautauqua with you. I could have been a... I must tell you one line. The first show I was in was called The Man of Her Choice. It was a melodrama. Yeah. And in the end of the first act, there were some papers. There were very important papers, and the villain had gone to visit her in the hospital, the leading girl. Mm -hmm. And just as he picks up the papers from under the pillow, and he starts to leave when I walk on. I was 15 then. And I pull out a gun, and I say, stop. Move one step and I'll blow you to smithereens. And the chitin came down. That's all there is to it. It's, it's nothing funny. It was tragic. I was, was getting six, I was getting $6 a week in this show. Weren't you tempted to get a laugh with the line or do something no, silly? No, I didn't know that it was funny. It wasn't. It was funny to the audience. But yeah. not to me, I was sincere. <laughs> From that day on, you've been one of the great con men of our time. Well, the villain... I tried to bind the couch in which he was lying. Oh, well, that's different. And he's a great study. He remembers the line to this day. You know, yes, I, mean, I was 15 have... years <laughs> What is a smithereen, anyway? Does anyone I have know? no idea. Anybody Small know place outside Burbank. Boy, the smithereens. What is a smithereen? Does anybody know? If you know, call us with uh, the, what a smithereen is, and we'll be back after this message from our local station. I tell you, everybody always says that, that, that Groucho is insincere when he does advertisements, but, but the, the bits in Cabot, 
where where he goes into a commercial break by saying, uh, "Hey, have you ever tried this Jello?" I mean, why why um presumably they had proper commercials, so why did they force the host to do that? Yeah, it's very clumsy now. Certainly, in the the Carson mm. clip, there's a similar thing. He has a little package of allegedly frozen bird's eye corn or jolly green giant corn <laughs> on the desk and he makes some remark about what i don't know what they filled this thing with yeah that's true it's something that's completely alien in uh, to, in british television we had we had commercial television which stopped for advertisements but we we never had announcers plugging stuff i think it may have had to do with the cachet of having the famous person seem to be sort of endorsing their product as well by leading mm. you into the commercial hey even johnny carson says it's good you know and of course in the 50s yeah some of the commercials were were live not all of them but sometimes they they were live and the shows are sponsored by a given company or organization uh, they actually kind of own the show in a sense well plymouth the soto for you bet your life you know i have often had the thought that dan rowan is expressing here like listening to that voice groucho's voice speaking so earnestly about the virtues of the DeSoto or Elgin American compacts or, uh, you know, it is true that we're, we're, as soon as you hear that voice, you expect everything it says to be ironic and sarcastic. Hmm. Well, it's like people, uh, Groucho says that he could never insult anybody anymore because they always took it as a joke, even when he really yeah. wanted to insult them. <laughs> it's, a, it's a related uh, phenomenon. Yeah, and yet, obviously, advertisers were happy to have him endorsing their product. So this was not a widespread problem, uh, or or at least being associated with Groucho was a, a good enough advantage commercially to make up for whatever damage his insincerity may have caused. Uh, I love the Walter Matthaus story. Um, not quite so much Groucho Marx tonight, Walter. Uh, and there's a funny <laughs> moment, isn't there, when... Groucho mentions Matthau's wife and says she used to be Saroyan's wife. I don't know if you know her. And Dick Cavett and Dan Rowan exchange a kind of amused little chuckle, like, no, no, we don't. Like, where are, why would we know William Saroyan's wife seems to be what <laughs> we don't travel in these circles, Groucho, that you do, even though Cavett arguably did. Uh, Carol Grace uh, is the woman we're talking about here. She was an author and an actor. She married the great Armenian-American playwright and novelist William Saroyan, twice. She was married to him uh, on two occasions, uh, for six years and then later for two more years, before in 1959 marrying Walter Matthau, and they stayed together until Matthau's death in the year 2000. Wouldn't it have been better if she'd been married to Jack Lemmon twice? <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of the of the Walter Matthau connection, but but having Groucho mentioned, I can see it. I can see that there was some Groucho to what Walter Matthau was doing, but that had never occurred to me before. Yeah, yeah, and particularly in the Odd Couple, which is um, you know, uh, thankfully Matthau's performance is preserved on film, and um, although and also the Fortune Cookie, I think. Yeah. Yes. These are not exactly Groucho characters, but they are um, bravura, high-energy comic personality turns, and they are also um, hyperverbal New York wise guys. Mm. And something to the melody of of how he speaks. You know, there's a if someone has a distinctive voice, you could call it a melody. And there's something s similar, not not an exact replica at all, but s something similar between those two. I think that, it, yeah. as I say, never occurred to me before. 
Although there's an earthiness to him as well that's more that's more Chico esque, isn't mm. there? He's mm-hmm. uh, Groucho, Groucho is more refined, yes. albeit uh, ironically. Yeah, and in a larger sense, you know, uh, thinking of Groucho's appearances with Cavett, uh, I think in a Groucho context, we we usually think of Cavett as Groucho's friend, um, as a, a, a performer and comic of the next generation who Groucho loved and was very encouraging of. Um, we think of these appearances on Cavett's show as kind of public conversations between Groucho and his friend. But it's also very legitimate and um, and worthwhile, I think, to think of them as performances. Uh, these talk show appearances are also performances. And that makes Dick Cavett, I believe, the only performer since George Fenneman and the last performer ever to establish a regular, excellent chemistry with Groucho over the course of numerous appearances mm. together. Yeah, I mean, what ultimately is the difference between a late Cavett show and Carnegie Hall? Uh, only that Groucho is is sitting down in a TV studio and and there's a guy there talking to him. He's telling the same stories. He's getting the same responses. Uh, it is absolutely a performance, yes. Yeah, there's something of a maybe um, a contrast to be drawn, including often, as you point out, telling the exact same stories. The way Groucho conducts himself on the Cavett show versus on the Buckley show versus on, you know, in, in Carnegie Hall or a, a concert appearance like that. Uh, the same material, just kind of at different levels of performance. It's very different to be telling it to one person, even though an audience is watching, than to be telling it to the audience. Yeah. Actually, I was surprised that given given Groucho's frailty, uh, automatically now what they would do in a, in a Carnegie Hall situation would be to have him interviewed the whole time, to have somebody familiar there prompting him. And, uh, and, and so I'm surprised that they didn't because seeing as Cavett was there and introduced them, uh, I think now the people would, would think, well, let's have him there. Let's have him coaxing him and, and getting the stories out of him. Yeah, that is a, a, a format that's widely used now. I sometimes think, oh, they mm. want us to pay for interviews where we used to just watch them on TV, but mm. now we're supposed to go into a, yes. to a hall and pay. Uh, but in that case, it probably would have paid off very nicely and, and been a little easier mm. for Groucho to do. I really like the story of early in Cabot's, early in their friendship, I suppose, and early in Cabot's uh, stand-up career, of Groucho reaching out to him and telling telling him that you're onto something good with the persona you have, the Rube or Hayseed, which was the terms that Cabot recalled Groucho saying at at Yale. And I like that, A, because it's kind and he's being helpful, but also it shows that Groucho didn't just have a good handle on his own humor and and what the he did with his brothers he had a good general comic sense about what could work for other people um you know mm. what he's describing cabot is doing is nothing he would ever do but he was sharp enough to see this works for you this is really good you should stick with it i mean cabot basically mm. did i mean that was basically who he was uh, uh ongoing so I, I i really like it i love that they that groucho was so openly as much as he teased him as openly fond of Cabot. He clearly viewed him. I wonder if he felt a little paternal towards him uh, or if it really was just friendship. 
And that's another interesting thing about Groucho. Another good thing about Groucho, isn't it, is that he was never, uh, never guarded with praise. A lot of comedians uh, are, are, can be very jealous in terms of uh, giving out praise, uh, but he was he was always happy to to say, "Oh, I liked that. I think you're good at this. Uh, you've got something there." Mm-hmm. You know. One of my favorite moments is Cavett said he had a couple of shrimp, and, and Groucho said, "Anybody I know." Uh, and then Cabot says something about a, <laughs> no, but a couple of meatballs asked for you. And then Cabot sheepishly says, you know, I only made that joke because it's in your style. You know, you, you enabled me to make that joke. And Groucho says, <laughs> and the timing's perfect. He, he lights a cigar and takes a puff. He says, that's kind of ironical that you sit here and pull a bad joke and then blame me for it. <laughs> and I mean, I laughed out loud when I just think that was a perfect moment. It's perfect that Cabot acknowledges that it was kind of a growl, bad Groucho joke he was making. Then Groucho topped him beautifully. I loved it. Just very, 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 very good. It's one of the things that I found very sweet about the Groucho and Cabot documentary is that by sort of putting brackets around these encounters between these two men, it made Groucho and Cavett, meaning Groucho Marx and Dick Cavett, as a sort of entertainment entity unto themselves, uh, very vivid. Like, oh, this is this was a thing. It's different from when Groucho is talking to other talk show hosts. Um, Groucho and Cavett, it's like, I'm not saying it's quite the same thing or on the same level, but it's like the Marx Brothers. It's a kind of act that Groucho was part of for some years, and it has its own values. Or Groucho and Fenneman, certainly. Or Groucho and Fenneman, absolutely. Yeah, great comfort there, and clearly some strong affection there. Um, yeah, it's great. In the United States, uh, Groucho and Cavett is still available to watch on the PBS streaming app or website. And the DVD, which includes some interesting bonus features, is now available too. And if you need any more incentive to track it down, I won't, I won't, uh, I won't give it away, but I will tell you this. It finally answers a question that has been gnawing at me for years, which is why did Zeppo never appear on the Dick Cavett show? If you haven't seen it, you will find out why. Yes, absolutely right. Uh, And yeah, I'm sure very few of our listeners have not seen the documentary yet, but if you haven't, uh, you really are in for a treat uh, if you love this stuff. And if you don't, how have you gotten this far into this episode right now? (laughs) Could I interject something that may want to go back? Yes. A little earlier in our conversation. And that is when he talked about uh, the man of her choice. And uh, I knew about that show, but it got me to really thinking about it. I mean, here he's 15 and he's in a, a drama, a melodrama. And he's, it went on a lengthy tour. He wasn't in, in it on Broadway, but shortly after it left Broadway. And he was on in it for a long time. And it went lots of places. And I spoke earlier of that sort of passion that many of us have for the Marx Brothers that not many performers inspire. But there is nothing about Groucho's life that I don't want to know. Any little detail that I can stumble (laughs) upon, give it to me. I'm ready for what did he have for breakfast on his 16th birthday? I'd love to know. Please tell me. (laughs) I I don't know where I came up with that. But, you know, that's just an example. And here... Pumpernickel. Yes, probably. (laughs) And here here we have him. He's on the road in in a... drama and he tells this great story about even then he hadn't even been any kind of comedy story or a comedy performer yet he'd only been in a couple of things but even then when he delivered a, a serious line uh people laughed and so i i wonder about groucho 
this is the kind of thing I, when I hear one little tidbit, then my mind goes racing off in a million directions, wanting to know other little tidbits. I want to know how funny Groucho was his whole life up until he got famous. How funny was he at 12? How funny was he at 14? You know, was he already to a degree, the Groucho we know, was he already a wisecracking and clever person? Or did he grow into that because of the work he was doing? And I'd like to know if when he was touring, and I have to check again, the man of her choice, did he dream of being a dramatic actor just in that period? Was he hoping for a, a career on Broadway, appearing in dramas and melodramas? Or did that feel like a bad fit and he was just waiting to move on to something lighter and comic? It's interesting that he does frequently describe himself as an actor, doesn't he, rather than a comedian. Very often on, on the talk shows, he says, I'm just an actor. Yeah. I would yes. give anything if he had written a diary in his teens, you know? Mm. Actor really was the term. Yeah, they, it is. They all seem to have referred to themselves as actors, um, including vaudevillians who who weren't doing what we would identify as acting, like vaudevillians who did bicycle acts and things, I think still use the word actor to refer to what mm. they did. Um, and it's interesting that on one of the What's My Line uh, episodes that we talked about, uh, Arlene Francis at one point is questioning a mystery guest and asks, are you a stand-up comedian? It might be Groucho. It may be the mystery guest she's referring to. I don't recall. Are you a stand-up comedian? Stand-up comedian is a, a fairly new, newly coined mm -hmm. term at that point, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and, you know, the idea of a comedian being someone who stands alone on stage and speaks directly to the audience um, was, was really not... Um, in, in currency through the Marx Brothers' early career. Even though there were comedians who did that, they were called monologists, you know. Yes, nobody would have called Burl or, or Benny a, a stand-up comedian. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, Will yeah. Rogers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, although now that, that's what they look like to us, embryonic stand-up mm. comedians. Mm. Frank Fay was that, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Fred Allen also in, in Bob Hope, his I guess. Years. Yeah. 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 Well, I wonder if uh, there are any conclusions to be drawn about Groucho as guest, uh, which is, is most of the work that he did in this part of his career. We've established that he was usually, but not always, a disruptive presence, and that that in some ways made him uh, a tribute to his earlier act in a way that he hadn't been on the quiz show. I, I would just say that I'm very grateful for these for these late television appearances and that I would uh, prefer them unequivocally to him trying to be a, a comedian still through those years i think that is exactly what i would i would want him to be as an elder statesman uh sitting down talking about himself and i just wish he'd gone further down that road and we had much more along the lines of uh of the firing line appearance what strikes me is is how beloved he remains throughout the audience is mad for him every in every yeah. single instance they are thrilled to see him they laugh at everything he says. Uh, it, it, you know, it's it's apparent that even you know, as he was getting later in life and not doing as much, and the, his great accomplishments receded a bit in the past, uh, further each year, uh, they were mad about him and very very happy to see him every single time, uh, from the dating game to the cabbage shows, uh, you name it. Uh, it they were it, they were thrilled to see Groucho, and it it gives I don't know it gives a lie a little bit to the notion that he was kind of withering away and, until Aaron came along mm, because there yes. hadn't been that long a period of inactivity, if at all, um, 
you know, and I, I, I imagine we want to get deep into discussing Aaron again, but it, it just, it's strange. I don't know that he was going to wither away without her. Maybe he was, maybe he was. I, I don't pretend to know for sure, but this did raise that question in my mind watching the, watching all these shows. And we are fortunate as well. You, you have to remember that, that there are, there are huge numbers of comedians who, from that era, who were still on the ball, but who just chose not to do that, chose mm-hmm. not to make themselves public in their family years. I mean, we could have a whole brace of, of Chaplin interviews when instead of just those few little clips that, that we're forced to rely on. Uh, there's, there's no reason why he, he couldn't have said, you know, I've, I've done what I had to do and I'm now going to live a private life. So we are very, very fortunate that we've got so much material from him in these years. Yes. And we certainly encourage everyone listening to this to go to marksbrotherscouncilpodcast.com Find the blog entry for this episode and watch these clips in their entirety. And then why not also spend the next few weeks on an endless YouTube rabbit hole of gradual appearances? Because <laughs> uh, as Matthew suggests, there are many more. Um, do you think we've done it? Should I do the Patreon update? Mm. And then, uh... Yeah. All right. Unless you've got anything more of you, Brett? No, I, I think I'm good. Well, here is a quick Patreon update. Patron postcard number two is just back from the printer, and by the time anyone hears this episode, it will be in the mail and on its way to all of our subscribers at the Students of Huxley, Left-Handed Moths, and Fireflies Cabinet levels. Uh, I think you're going to like postcard number two. Some have gotten in touch to report that they did not receive postcard number one, and replacement cards have been sent. Furthermore, The first of our subscribers at the left-handed moths and fireflies cabinet levels are soon to receive the Bogards After the Hunt poster. The poster ships after the third monthly Patreon payment. So if you joined at the top two tiers in the month of December, your Bogard will be on its way to you following February's (laughs) payment. If you joined in January, the Bogard will ship after your March payment and so on, especially so on. I handle the postcards myself, having them printed and mailed. But for the Bogard poster and the other gift items at the upper levels, uh, fulfillment is by Patreon. So you should have no trouble getting them. Do people on the lower tiers get a John Parker? (laughs) (laughs) Um, We want to also say thank you to our subscribers for all the interesting responses to our first member bonus segment, which was released on our Patreon page last month when episode 53 was released. Our first bonus segment was a look at some significant Marx Brothers supporting players, led by our guest Nick Santamaria. And our subscribers at all levels can find bonus segment number two on our Patreon page right now. It features Mr. Brett Leverage and a galaxy of Marx Brothers adjacent figures who have crossed his path. We want to thank all of our subscribers and remind all of our other listeners that a richer and deeper Marx Brothers Council podcast experience and the satisfaction of knowing you are keeping the show going are available to you for as little as $3 a month at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Now, about that closing music, Brett. Yes, well, my favorite song, uh, my favorite non-comic song from any Marx Brothers movie is uh, Why Am I So Romantic? And I love it when Lillian Roth sings it. But um, instead, I'm going to ask that we go out with uh, the band Phillips Orchestra 
and a male vocalist whose name eludes me. I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me. But it's sung by a, a male singer and Van Phillips Orchestra, certainly probably not terribly prominent today. So it'll, it may be a version that uh, our friends and listeners haven't yet heard. So how the fuck am I supposed to find it if I don't have the artist? I have it for you. I, I, I have it for you, Bob. No, no worries. I wouldn't have picked it if I wasn't ready to provide it. So you're all set. Okay. Podcast is produced by Bob Gassell. Matthew Conium's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. 
For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarksBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marks and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marks Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time!